This is episode 27 of the Brick and Data podcast, a podcast dedicated to retail news, analytics, and tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Brick and Data Podcast. This is Todd Harris, and for episode 27, we are joined by Paul Raffin. And the topic of this episode is going to be all about how technology can help create retail experiences. We're always talking about technology in this podcast, and it boils down to several things, including the experience that retailers give their shoppers in stores and online, too. So Paul Raffin is an internationally known C-suite executive. He's got about 40 years of experience managing consumer goods businesses across the fashion industry, spanning department store retail, wholesale, direct-to-consumer, vertical specialty retail, luxury, men's, women's, kids' apparel, the list seems to go on and on. Paul is known first and foremost as a highly experienced merchant. Having worked with industry luminaries from the late Marvin Traub to Les Wexner and Michael Weiss to William and Victor Fung. He's held CEO, president, division president roles at multiple retailers, including Fret Express, J. Crew, Lee and Fung USA with the Men's and Kids and Entertainment Licensing Group, the Fry Company. Paul was recently featured in an MIT Sloan publication about enterprise leadership and has recently joined Collective Growth Partners as a consultant. So we're really happy to have Paul on today. And the first topic is about how the retail landscape has changed over the past 5, 10, even 20 years. So let's join Jose and Paul and hear what Paul has to say about that. Well, it, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Jose, for inviting me to, uh, to speak with you today. And uh, it has been, I, I'm fortunate and I have a, an over 40-year perspective of uh, being a student and an executive of the industry and was very fortunate enough to have started my career at Bloomingdale's in the 70s, which was truly an experiential uh, format uh, owed chiefly to the visionary Marvin Traub, the late Marvin Traub. Uh, and so I've, I've witnessed uh, the, the demise of that model and the slow uh, kind of demise of the entire department store uh, uh, format, and which has accelerated in the past five years. But speaking to retail in general, uh, you know, the, the overused or hyperbolic phrase, the retail apocalypse, uh, truly is upon us. And we're seeing and witnessing the last of the painful, very painful contraction and consolidation of uh, simply the sheer amount of selling space uh, in the United States. Uh, we, we have double to triple what any other industrialized nation has. So a lot of that uh, excess square footage is going to be shed, uh, coupled with a rotation away from conventional business models, namely department stores and even some specialty store formats. And uh, really that rotation heading toward uh, much more new and innovative formats. 
so I, I really will uh, I'll describe briefly four major macro trends that I think are um, I'm witnessing and, and the rest of the industry is witnessing as well. And the first and, and probably the most important is the department store business model uh, being broken. Uh, after nearly four decades of chasing cheaper cost of goods sold through obviously when China opened up and every other uh, low labor uh, nation in the world uh, usually starts making apparel before it climbs the ladder toward uh, higher labor forms uh, of technology and things like that. Uh, th- that, that. Those days are kind of over. I worked most recently for Li and Fung, a $25 billion trading company. And I can attest to the fact that uh, labor and material costs are increasing. Uh, and what's happened in the department stores, as uh, you know, those those uh, factors are in place, the average unit retails are in fact deflationary. So you've got this uh, unfortunate set of variables uh, coupled with uh, the exacerbating factor of operating expense. Uh, associated with the omni-channel model, it's much more expensive than anyone had envisioned. Uh, It's it's nearly 18 cents on the dollar to set up the logistics and reverse logistics necessary to provide customers with exactly what they want, when they want it, in the place that they want it. Uh, So all of that combined is a really sharp deterioration in gross margin for the department store sector. Uh, when you add to that the decline in comp store sales, uh, the revenue line offset very slightly by some gains in their online models. Uh, you've got a virtual death spiral uh, within the department stores that is, uh, is very, very hard for them uh, to confront. And this is why you're seeing so many store closings and, and vacancies within uh, the anchor positions uh, in, in many, many malls across the country. The the consequence of this department store decline is that the wholesale sector uh, is is under pressure even more so to try to subsidize, as it were, this lack of performance. And, you know, they're faced with the unenviable task of having to hit very sharp retail price points because the consumer continues to demand value, knowing that 90 percent of the units are going to be sold off price. And then the wholesaler, wholesaler is going to be held responsible for um, making up the margin loss uh, to the department store. So it, the wholesalers are under siege as well. So you've got this entire industry um, that is in crisis mode, as it were. And, and what ends up happening is the only way to survive in that kind of an environment is you have to take take the quality and in some instances, the design and the appeal out of the product itself. Uh, hence, you've got Macy's sitting with commoditized, uh, homogeneous fodder, frankly, that is so uninspiring to a customer who's now learned to, frankly, expect more. Uh, and the problem is just when the department stores could use you know, newer, more innovative, small, exclusive type brands, those companies can't compete given those variables and the criteria that the, the department stores demand of them in order to uh, to do business. So it's like the industry is really eating its young, and um, it, it's a big problem. So that that's the first major macro trend. The second closely related is the inroads and in market share uh, that's been stolen by foreign <clears throat> foreign competition within the U.S. 
and specifically Uniglo, Zara, H&M, Forever 21, Primark, all of these brands solved the fashion value, speed, newness equation. In fact, I worked for 10 years for Les Wexner, and I ran the Express business for him, which Express at the time was pretty much the uh, the first fast fashion model. And Les was very proud about the architecture that he used to create this. When he started to see these this type of foreign competition hit the U.S. Uh, uh, sector, he, he basically said, you know what? They've rewritten my book. Uh, they've, they've improved on my model. And what I envision is an apparel sector that is going to be a chase to the bottom as far as speed and price. So he, he, at that point, made a decision to divest himself of all the apparel brands, leaving himself, which is Victoria's Secret and, uh, and Bath and & Body Works. And, in fact, he, it, it turned out to be exactly as he predicted. Um, well, Paul, actually, that, that sounds a little bit like um, – it, it's interesting, right? Because we think about um, a lot of these fast fashion models that we talk about today, like H&M, Zara, uh, Uniqlo. But, in fact, to your point, it, it, it's a trend that has been around for a while and is one of the four major macro trends that are affecting, uh, let's say, it's related to the macro trends that are changing in the landscape. But it also reminds me of Benetton, right, in its time. That once existed, which people often forget. Yeah, the, the major difference, and this is closely related to the third macro trend I'm citing, is the advent of social media. Because what social media, which didn't exist back in Benetton's day, what it has done, it has increased the consumer's perception uh, of the value of fast fashion, disposable clothes. You cannot be seen twice on your uh, your Instagram page wearing the same outfit. You just, you cycle through clothes a lot faster. Uh, right. Clothes have less, much less value as a result. And then also social media has helped destroy the mystique of the entire fashion system. Uh, because, you know, unlike a movie where the director shoots it and, you know, spends a lot of time editing it and then they leak out a trailer and there's a little bit of pre-market buzz and then the movie launches, in fashion with the bloggers, they're sitting there at the Chanel uh, show. Uh, they're posting and blogging. It's a complete, you know, uh, open to the world view of what Chanel's just sent down the runway. And before Chanel delivers it, it's in Zara for, you know, <laughs> a tenth of the price. So, you know, Benetton, your prior example, didn't face some of these, um, the realities of speed and the, the speed with which information gets around the globe. Sure, because that's also affected the supply chain. I mean, because you, you're bringing up a very valid point uh, because the consumer, because she or he sees it on social media, um, she or he also expects it at home quicker, right? Which is with, uh, with what some of this experimentation has been the last few years, right? With uh, from runway to direct consumer. Uh, bypassing in yeah, uh, mm -hmm. exactly Tom Ford and Tommy Hilfiger both uh, kind of interesting uh, you know uh, blend of, of two different design approaches uh, both had runway shows this past uh, fall where they sent uh, the clothes and the clothes were available immediately and the consumer could order them uh, right after the show so um, it's really added in a sense to the chaos that uh, exists within the industry right now because even the system that used to be kind of sequential and linear as far as the supply chain uh, effort has now been completely thrown out to ear. And I, I actually advise a little company called Zeal who has uh, coupled with an artificial intelligence-enabled uh, uh, software approach, uh, they create 
capsules of um, athleisure and yoga wear for uh, retailers, uh, generally small retailers, and they can turn it around from design to delivery within seven to 10 days. So uh, I think you're going to see more of that emphasis uh, placed on speed and on the precision with which inventory is, uh, you know, located uh, right at the point in time when a customer wants to buy it. No, and to, to your point, and I would say, uh, uh-huh. go ahead. I was just going to say that that pretty much plays right into the, or along with the Zara model, right? Seven to 10 days used to be uh, something that every retailer wanted to achieve. But now what it sounds like from what you're saying, um, it's something that is feasible. And so that will probably have that model potentially involved to a quicker, let's say, turnaround time. Well, I think where it's going to evolve to once uh, leaders like Shima Seiki uh, really figure out the commercialization and interface aspects of ready-made clothes that where the store, in fact, becomes the factory and you walk in and you're, the magic mirror uh, scans you and you select uh, the exact piece of clothing that you want and it basically is knit for you uh, using, you know, amazing technology that exists. In fact, it exists right now. Uh, Ministry of Supply up in Boston has it. It's still a little clunky, uh, but that will all be uh, rationalized and figured out within the next five years. And it's interesting, Paul, that you bring up Ministry of Supply. Actually, I I saw it uh, in their uh, showroom. Maybe I would say the first knit jackets that they put out, I was there maybe about a month ago, actually. And, and it was interesting, to your point, that they they are uh, starting to use this um, because of the technology that, that's available to, to customize, right? Which is part of another a separate trend, not necessarily for this uh, conversation, but customization, right? Which is an important... It's a very important trend. And I actually have a 15-year-old daughter. I predict when she's in her 20s, she'll wake up on a Saturday morning take a look at her social media feed, see what the model of the moment was wearing to a fabulous party in Paris the night before, and be able to order something that approximates it without infringement of any kind of uh, you know trademark issues, uh, and have it delivered to her door via drone probably within a couple of hours. Oh, wow. uh, it fit perfectly for her and made exactly to her specifications because all of those interfaces, as I say, will be figured out. So I, I think we're just at the beginning of wh- the way technology is going to continue to impact uh, the way in which consumers, uh, you know, interact and engage with brands. And my last macro trend is really uh, the apparel sector, particularly, has gotten uh, very, very hurt. Uh, and and some of that is self-inflicted due to lack of innovation and and the constant drone of the discount model, which basically has eliminated the perceived value of a lot of these clothes. But I really think it's giving way. The share of wallet now is going to experiences for sure, uh, to technology. Technology costs a lot of money, and, and young kids these days want to invest in it. And frankly, sneakers, uh, this the whole sneaker trend where uh, a lot of young consumers are willing to pay five, seven, $700,000 for an exclusive pair of sneakers. Uh, the, the whole athleisure trend, which um, our friend Mickey Drexler at J. Crew mistakenly said was only a, a quick fad that would probably fade. Uh, it, has, it has become a lifestyle, and it definitely has had an impact on um, 
on the fashion industry and, and particularly apparel. And so it's interesting, right, that you brought up sneakers because there, there's a store that is um, a, right by Union Square and it's a sneaker store. And their whole thing is to have these specialized sneakers. And I hadn't realized. So you uh, mentioned prices that were in the, you know, $7,000 range, but they have sneakers that are $10,000. I hadn't realized yeah. that there were sneakers. I mean, uh, there was a time when a lot, um, let's say a, a high retail price point for a pair of sneakers would have been, and this is maybe 30 years ago, um, close to $100. Anything above that was insane. But now $7,000, $10,000 seems to be the the top of the range and maybe that's not even the top well you know it's i think the the rappers and the, uh, the whole uh that whole community has absolutely had an incredible impact on uh sneakers and and the fact that sneakers are so in vogue and you know generally you see these white 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 shoe brown shoe cycles come and go and uh you know it, it always affected brands like timberland if you know nike got hot you'd see well timberland's probably going to cool cool off this sneaker trend has gone on unabated for what must be uh, over five years maybe close to seven years now to the point that you go to barney's you go online you'll see many many more sneaker ideas uh from brands like zanote or Saint Laurent or gucci then you will, uh, you know, the, the more traditional footwear, and uh, and that's absorbing a lot of share of wallet uh, right there because people, you know, consumers are willing to pay premium prices. Wow, and and so Paul, to, to if you were to summarize uh, these four macro trends that you would that, that that you just described that are essentially changing um, or affecting the retail landscape, what were the four? Could, could you quickly summarize what these four? Uh, Let's yeah, the, the the death the death of the department store model, which is broken. The inroads and the market share that have been stolen by foreign competition who built a better mousetrap. Uh, so the, the fast fashion purveyors, uh, the uh, incredible fuel that social media has provided as far as fueling specifically customers' expectations for constant change. You, everyone has an instant gratification fix. Uh, every single day they're picking up their smartphone, and yet you'll pass by a store window and they'll change it once a month. So there's a real disconnect between the speed with which information is flowing and the relatively boring pace which brick-and-mortar retailers uh, are addressing the subject of, of change and innovation. And the last, of course, is uh, the share of wallet trend with uh, more experiences. Experiences and experiential is such a key buzzword now. Uh, people in all uh, demographic uh, strata, I think, will, uh, really like to invest in, in memories much more the more so than in stuff. Uh, you know, the boomers particularly were the me generation that liked more stuff. And even those of us who uh, are trying to simplify our lives are finding it refreshing uh, where, when less is more and you've got more uh, discretionary income to spend on experiences, on vacations, on dining. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is a big theme as far as uh, there are some visionary formats out there 
that do embrace the experiential formula. And it, it's important to take a look at the recipes involved in those business models and extract some of the variables and the components that can then be applied to an existing business. Sure. And that makes a lot of sense, right? And, and what you're saying is, so whereas for, let's say, and these are only segments, but they're really more demographic than psychographic because it's not really an age thing, but just, just for, uh, let's say, simplicity's sake, if we were to take uh, baby boomers, you're right, uh, experiences came uh, later, right? It wasn't always about the experience, but that came in the later years. If you then go to Gen X, it was somewhere in between, right? Experience need not wait till later, but it wasn't one of the first things. Whereas if we go to uh, millennials today, uh, it seems like experience is crucial. It's critical. It's one of the first elements before anything else, which to your point is is driving uh, not only by millennials, but anyone with that kind of mentality or psychographic of the instant gratification, if you will. Well, and I think there's a reason for some optimism because, uh, again, I've got a couple of millennial kids. And what I uh, witness and what has been borne out by research is that these kids actually like to go shopping. They, they enjoy the physical aspect of shopping. Now, uh, he, and I'm not saying they love to go into Mason's Herald Square, but they like – my, my theory, uh, Jose, is that uh, – there's an inverse relationship between the the explosion of technology in all forms, and you know, being a subject matter expert in the world in the world of artificial intelligence, we're not even seeing the way those changes are going to come down the pike. But the more and more technology begins to become pervasive in in every single moment of of our days, I think there's a humanness that is, is kind of eroding a certain to a certain extent. And I think what I witnessed in these kids is a strong desire to then uh, counteract that cold technological aspect with more uh, socialization, more touch, uh, more of a humanity behind their everyday existence. And I think that's a healthy trend for those retailers who can get that piece right. Sure. No, no, that, that's a great point, Paul, because that, that's also a very nice segue into one of our questions today, which is how, how can this, um, it's a delicate balance, right? It has to feel authentic, but somehow there has to be efficiency. And it's this tension that exists. So how can technology uh, be, um, or how is it being leveraged, perhaps is the better way to put it, in order to create these experiential um, formats in retail? Or perhaps well, uh, yeah, I think that's it's such a great question, and it's a question that's on, I'm sure, most CEOs' minds uh, right now. And and I've witnessed uh, kind of a meandering path as, as different brands try different things. I think the Burberry on Regent Street, which about five years ago was uh, hailed as such an innovative uh, concept with technology in the fitting rooms and technology on the selling floor, and I was very excited to see it, and I did see it, and. Yeah, unfortunately, the day I was there, a lot of it wasn't even working, and they had <laughs> bugs in it or something. <laughs> sure. uh, and, and I thought it was really interesting because they went from, together with Rebecca Minkoff, I guess is the U.S. Uh, equivalent, you know, hanging a lot of the fancy technology on the walls of the store. And really, it, it felt a little bit like uh, we're, we're kind of buying our way into the experiential model through uh, obvious technology technological, um, you know, improvements. 
And at times, it didn't feel as though technology was really supporting the brand uh, as much as it was overwhelming it. Sure. So I do think uh, a, a clever, more subtle model, uh, technology is going to absolutely aid with marketing and communication and very personalized communication to individual customers because no one is buying a monolithic brand's effort to push their look and their products on that consuming public anymore. Just ask. Ralph Lauren. Uh, they had their zeitgeist. They had a phenomenal run. And uh, consumers want a sense of personalization. It can absolutely play a role in products. Uh, in fact, in products that contain wearable technology and products that can be personalized. Uh, and then, of course, it can, uh, technology is going to affect uh, the format itself, whether right. it's the brick and mortar store or the online experience. I think once you get to 3D web browsing, you're going to see a huge explosion in experiential uh, online shopping. Uh, and then finally, the operations of the business itself. Uh, and I know, you know, what, what, what you're, uh, some of the work you're doing right now, using artificial intelligence to help with the planning and allocation functions digitizing the supply chain, uh, the way robotics uh, and AI and augmented reality are all going to come into play uh, to really improve the operations of the business itself. These are, these are major, major impacts uh, that will be felt. Uh, and as I said, it, we won't recognize retail in about five years because uh, if you haven't changed and moved toward uh, down those paths, uh, you'll be out of business. I fully agree. Um, I fully yeah. agree. So. And, and, and Paul, just, just stick, sticking with it, this idea, right, of, of the organization and the retail as an organization, it seems that retailers have been trying to keep up with customers, right, rather than leading them. There was a time when retailers used to lead customers, but actually, uh, perhaps because of technology and, and mobile phones, um, this whole paradigm has, has changed. Um, so with this in mind... Um, how can retailers with large store networks incorporate technology into their organizations? Or, or, or perhaps another way to think about this, um, their existing organizations need to change. And if so, how would their organizations need to change? What, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, it's just so, frankly, that is the sweet spot of the solution is a cultural change within these hierarchical organizations. Uh, what, what we're witnessing is a generational passing of the baton between the boomers who are sitting in the C-suite and have frankly been motivated and experienced by completely different, a different era, frankly, in, uh, in, in, in the industry. Uh, and the eventual, uh, you know, taking up of that charge by the millennials. Uh, you know, Gary Hamill wrote a phenomenal book about five years ago, way ahead of his time. Uh, he's a professor at Stanford, and the book's title is What Matters Now. And in, in the, uh, there's a, a favorite piece of the book where he goes through um, kind of like the, the characteristics uh, that would be used to define Apple. And, and, and what would Apple be described as as far as a culture versus, let's say, put Macy's at the top of this other column. So on the Apple side of the ledger, it would be be passionate. On Macy's, it's be rational. With Apple, it's lead, don't follow. Macy's, be cautious. Aim to surprise. Aim to satisfy. Be, reason, be unreasonable. Macy's, be practical. Uh, Apple, Innovate incessantly. Macy's innovate when necessary. 
Um, and then the last one which I love is at Apple, think like an engineer and feel like an artist. That's great. Macy's, yes, think like an engineer and feel like an accountant. <laughs> and so you, you know, you've got these, these, this incredible cultural uh, kind of gridlock because there's inertia. There's this fear of failure and a just when the industry needs experimentation and innovation and it where it, the discount era is over you can't just pound on price anymore you must start to do things in an innovative way a lot of these c-suites are gripped by fear and inertia and they are just kind of stuck sure so uh yeah and and to what you're saying it, it's fascinating right because if you think about this let's take away the name apple from one side of the ledger and macy's from the other side of the ledger if we were to mm-hmm. switch them um and go back in time i think that many of the things that you said for apple is are, are the things that macy's would have upheld years ago right maybe 10 15 20 years ago that that was the name of the game was the passion the experience a lot of the things that leading but somehow something's happened and something's fundamentally fundamentally changed for them well i think when you perpetuate a bit of a, a three card monte ruse on the unsuspecting consumer who eventually gets savvy to what you're doing and you know, when macy started out with a handful of one day sales they probably meant something even though there was a high low ticketing that you know the ticket price on their products was never legitimate it was always engineered to be able to make margin at the reduced sale price well that drug because every year you got a <laughs> sure. last year now his mushroom to 365 one day sales and um i think the, you know in this eight day and age of transparency where you've got uh, business models like everlane that will uh, ask you to tell us what you'd like to pay for that product uh we'll tell you about the factory in vietnam that produces this product so you're assured that you're not supporting child labor or uh, some horrible corrupt situation uh or even you think of patagonia uh patagonia that's you know their famous homepage where uh, they said don't buy this jacket sure. and the asterisk was um, in case you really need a new one and if you do please you know bring us your gently used one so we can donate to somebody who really needs it. Th- those are the types of transparent, socially conscious companies that I think consumers now gravitate to whereas Macy's they started out playing in the casino feeling as though they could uh, dictate and I think the the game is over. Uh and 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 it's going to take an incredible amount of uh disruption frankly. Uh, to get that model working again. Sure. No, no, that 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 makes a lot of sense and and you know, let, let's move on um and talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, Amazon. Right? So Sure. Amazon's apparel business, uh not not including anything else, only apparel is expected to grow uh to 50 billion dollars in sales by the year 2020, which is roughly uh based on that estimate about 12% of the apparel market. Given this data point, how can brick and mortar retailers respond to this or what should they be thinking uh, at this point? 
Well, I, I give a lot more um, chance of survival to the vertically integrated branded models that are direct to consumer than I do to the intermediary models like a department store where it's a house of brands. And many of those brands, just because they have to survive as well, uh, you know, you sell uh, a very well-known brand into both Macy's and Amazon. I'll tell you right now, uh, the profit margin at Amazon was vastly superior to that of Macy's because of all the expectations uh, that, you know, the store levies upon you. So I do think uh, if you have what I'd call a sticky model, uh, so the product is innovative and differentiated and it's not just another me too copy of something <laughs> sure. you can find in you know 10,000 other places and you add to that elements of personalization customization you know i think of suit supply as a perfect model for this young millennial a guy who's dressing up again and which i'm, I'm very proud of in fact the boomers kind of lost their way with uh ugly Coogee sweaters and dockers uh, <laughs> and called it casual Friday. You know, you've got a whole generation of young guys now that are they're taking pride in dressing up and they, they get a chance to collaborate with the brand suit supply and, you know, create and get educated. And it's, it's an amazingly what I call a sticky model sure. uh, because there is that experiential aspect to it. You can't get that right now from Amazon. Um, I'm sure, they're going to figure out ways to improve the uh, the apparel uh, selling interfaces, and and you know they'll, they'll they'll do something for sure. But I do think um, that kind of uh, stickiness with personalization, customization, a loyalty program, a very strong why for the brand. Like you know Patagonia, Patagonia is not going to be selling through Amazon. They're going to keep their brand uh, relatively pure and direct to a customer who appreciates the, the core value sure. that that company ha uh, has. And I think that value, those values, not the price you pay, but the societal values that mm -hmm. you associate and affiliate with a brand are very important differentiating characteristics to somebody looking to compete with uh, with the giant, uh, specifically Amazon and now Walmart with, with Jet. Right, no, no, that, and what you, you're saying, I mean, really resonates right uh in, in the sense that uh look it's you were talking about this uh prior to our um discussion today it was about values right imbuing values within the organization in order to create the right things because it's not just about um tech or product but it's really values in an organization that have to be aligned in order for everything else uh to work around and, and, and align Right in in the right way for a given given retailer. I mean, if you were to look at yeah. uh, some some of um, these issues, they're they're organizational. Go going back to to a prior point, is you're you're pointing out, and it, it's not just about the let's just sell sell things. And and the other point that that I'm t taking away very strongly from our conversation is um, the whole piece of differentiation. Right that. Uh, brick-and-mortar retailers have to differentiate themselves, uh, and it can't just be a cost-sided uh, type of solution because obviously, as you rightfully pointed out, having uh, 365 one-day sales <laughs> isn't solving anyone's problem. No, and, and frankly, it's diluting your brand because 
You know, price is a lever that has been pushed so repeatedly, it's frankly boring. Does 70% off really motivate a consumer? Uh, you know, I, yeah, at some point it probably does. But it, when people ask me, who are the, what are the two best uh, examples of experiential retail concepts out there today? I always say Eataly. Uh, you know, I live in the sure. Florida district. I'm always in there. Eatily. That is essentially food wrapped in socialization and speaks exactly to the trend I mentioned earlier where young people, people of all ages, frankly, want to put their damn phone down over a, a beautiful glass of Brunello di Montalcino and a nice meal, looking at your friend or your loved one in the eye, actually having a conversation <laughs> sure. and, and then being able to take a piece of that home with you. Uh, every major mall developer in the co- country is dying to get an Italy in because it brings traffic and it brings an emotional connection to that experiential model. Uh, And then the other one is Perch. And I think Perch, you know, they saw the white space that existed up above uh, Home Depot for for buying, you know, uh, a new bathtub or a shower uh, head or or a kitchen or so. And, you know, relatively commoditized type products, but done in an environment that is so – they're all better products too – so incredible. I mean, this this, uh, visionary, Jerry Sears, sends – his sales team to uh, Perch's University of Joy, where they are immersed in a one-week kind of seminar approach uh, with a a neuroscience uh, technique that teaches them how to unlock serotonin in the brains of the client who is coming into Perch, the Perch store. (laughs) These are, are, you know, innovative retail thoughts that most 99.9% of the retail executives, uh, they just don't get to because they're trapped in a paradigm or a culture that doesn't reward that. Right. And, and I think I, I love uh, Perch and I love Italy. And Italy um, is incredible. I, I, I too spend a lot of time there because of the experience, right? As a former retailer, for me, and it hurts to say that, but as a former retailer, I love that experience because it, it's, it's open, right? It, it's as close as one can get. Um, to Italy in any city where you'll go into an Italy and you have an open restaurant which is part of the store uh, you're in between sections and uh, every city is a little bit different or every location is a little bit different they have something that's, that makes it particularly unique and that's it just makes me, you're right it, it's that experience that I, I, I don't think I've ever walked out of Italy with anything but a smile on my face. Of course. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, on the benefit ladder of life where you have technical, functional, and emotional benefits, Italy, they aim to surprise. And they always do. And they always manage to get it right. Uh, the quality is there. The quality of uh, the entire brand resonates through every single touch point. And uh, it's, it's an ingenious concept. And I think, again, if you were selling something else, selling even uh, apparel, what are the, uh, the the cues and and the elements of that recipe that can be extracted and reapplied to your particular business format? And I, I, th- I do think there there are some major lessons to be learned. Exactly. No, I, I agree. And and the interesting thing about these two examples is that perhaps they have technology. Um, within their organizations somehow. I mean, they obviously have the basic technology, which is registers and and uh, shopping counters, etc. But beyond that, if they do have it in store, and I'm trying to think of both Perch and, and Italy as, as I'm talking to you, 
um, whatever technology we come into contact with um, is invisible. And still, that experience... Bidedly subtle, that's right. Yeah, I think, yeah, and that's, you know, Jose, that, what you just said is, I think, the, the, that's one of those uh, recipe uh, elements that I think is important. Have technology support the brand. So at Perch, uh, what technology enables is not one price is seen on the product. And you go into Home Depot or Lowe's, all you see is a sea of prices and tags, and it's uh, kind of chaotic. Uh, but the, the, at Perch, you're handed a, uh, an iPad. And so you walk around the store with the iPad. And when you want to receive a price of something, you just simply hold the iPad over the item. The item comes to life on the screen. All the price information is there. And, you know, interestingly enough, Perch will meet price. They'll meet the cheapest price out there. It's not like you're paying premiums for the product. So they understand they have to offer value, but they don't flutter it up. Um, Italy is like... You know, the, 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 you will not see the technology there. It's all behind the scenes. Uh, there are very, very smart merchants about uh, sizes of departments, uh, the turnover rates inside each of the departments, the way they set their floor up, with the center generally being the eating area, the communal area, sure. as it were, and then the shopping experience being uh, peripherally around that. Uh, very, very clever. It's funny, you know, when I think about it, Stanford, uh, the Palo Alto shopping mall, uh, very, Stanford's an, an amazing uh, community, obviously, with Silicon Valley. They, they need to change the way they have their restaurants. They have a lot of their fine dining on the perimeter of the mall. So as a result, when the traffic, uh, when the parking lot's full, everyone's in the, in, in the restaurants. No one ever makes it into the in, inner part of the mall <laughs> to get to the store, <laughs> unless you're going to Tesla. Sure. <laughs> right. But Italy uh, wow. has figured all that out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so... Paul, unfortunately, we're we're almost out of time, so we have mm-hmm. uh, time for one more question. So the sure. the last question for you today is: Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to share with our retail audience today? Well, I think uh, from my perspective, I, I'm now involved in uh, numerous number of technology startups uh, here in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and in Silicon Valley. And it's, uh, you know, the area is really involved wearable technology, artificial intelligence, augmented reality. And I, because of the work I'm doing with a lot of these disruptive startup companies, I see what lies ahead. And it is incredibly, incredibly exciting. Uh, I think we're on the, the, the dawn of a, frankly, a new era where uh, technology is about to leap us much, much further ahead to the point we'll probably look back at the, the era that we're, we're living in right now where most of us are uh, getting next strain from staring down at our smartphone screens. <laughs> and we'll say, geez, remember when that was almost like smoking cigarettes. No one really does that anymore uh, because the, the whole notion of the physical hardware is going to change, uh, the 3D aspect of web browsing, uh, what, you know, some of the work you're doing, Jose, on artificial intelligence, as you know, that is just uh, uh, mind-blowingly uh, disruptive. I mean, I have Alexa on my uh, kitchen counter right now. And uh, if, for many people, this is just at the very beginning 
of uh, uh, climbing the ladder, as it were, of, of innovation and change. Uh, you know, the areas of nanotechnology and wearable technology, clothes that are intelligent and think for you. Uh, I'm working with a company called Lumia. Lumia is doing some phenomenal work uh, in that whole wearable technology space. And I think the bottom line for me is there's a tremendous opportunity for companies who welcome change and have a culture that welcomes change. They celebrate innovation and they don't perpetuate this, this risk averse culture that's built on the fear of failure. Uh, it, it, that takes a lot for a public company that has to report quarterly to uh, uh, kind of change that paradigm. Uh, but those companies who do that are going to see, coupled with all this technology change that's coming down the pike, uh, a phenomenal way of not just surviving, but, but going to the next level with customers who really love their brands and love the products that they're producing. Uh, so I have a sense of optimism, but I, I, we're at that inflection point where, you know, you've almost got to burn the old model down completely, uh, get the last of the poison out of the system while uh, green shoots are coming up in the industry for uh, some of these these new visionaries. Sure. No, no, that 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 makes a lot of sense, Paul. I mean, and and to the point that you made um, about change, I, I I think today or earlier uh, in our conversation we talked about Amazon as the elephant in the room, and I, and I think that that's a model that a lot of um, elements, not the the whole model itself, but elements that retailers, brick and mortar retailers, um, are trying to emulate. But I think to your point, in the future, what we kind of hold is the gold standard uh, at this point in time will kind of seem like ancient. <laughs> It'll be old news because with all the technologies out there, it's going to be a new world with um, AR, uh, virtual reality. Um, it, it, it'll be a whole new world out there. But, but with that, um, Paul, I'd like to thank you for your time today. And thank you very much for, for being on the Brick and Data podcast. Well, I really enjoy the time with you, Jose, as always. And uh, yeah, I look forward to sharing uh, more of our thoughts going forward. I just want to leave you with one last line. And this, again, is from Gary Hamill's book. And this is the bottom line since Apple is so successful. It'll be the first trillion-dollar company out there. Uh, he, says, he says, Apple's unique success is a product of its unique values, which are uniquely innovation-friendly and customer-centric. And I, I think that that pretty much says it all. So um, thank you again for uh, letting me uh, have some of this time. And I, and I hope it was uh, was worthwhile. Well, that's the show, everybody. Thanks for listening. Paul was highly entertaining. He's got some great things to say. And Jose and I both appreciate his time. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, you can email us at brickdatacast at gmail.com. If you have anything specific for Paul, you can email Paul at paulraffin, R-A-F-F-I-N, at msn.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, along with most of your favorite podcast apps. And hey, did you know Jose and I are going to be at shop.org this year in September? We'll have more information on that, along with a discount code for you to use if you want to attend yourself. But we'll be there live, so we look forward to seeing you there. But until next time, take care, everyone.